Welcome to Opera for Everyone. I am your host, Pat Wright, and with me here today in the studio is... Greg. Welcome, Greg. Today, Greg, what opera are we listening to? Today, we are listening to Arabella. By? Ricard Strauss. With librettist Hugo von Hofmannsthal, longtime collaborator with Ricard Strauss. This is their sixth collaboration, Arabella which premiered in 1933. Greg, what can you tell us about this opera? Maybe start with what's happening now. All right. So this is uh, Countess Waldner and her close friend, Claire Voyant. And they are- I'm sorry, back up. Claire Voyant. Yes, that's, that's her name according to the program notes. All right. So she's with her, is that not her name? Maybe she's a fortune teller. She sees into the future. Oh, she's not clairvoyant. She's clairvoyant. You can see why that was confusing. Thanks for clearing that up for us. Where were we? <laughs> right in the beginning, I believe. Right in the very beginning. So her friend, who is a clairvoyant fortune teller, is reading the cards. And they are essentially doing a proem. They're setting out everything that's going to happen in the rest of the opera. Proem. Tell us about that word. Proem? Wait, wait. Is this our Homeric reference? Yes, we have a Homeric reference in every opera for everyone. We do. You mentioned that and recently. And there's a lot of tension, I know, as we go through this whole thing. Yes. So it's kind of like when Alfred Hitchcock decided to appear in all of his own movies. You wait for it. At some point, everyone realized that people were not having any fun until he showed up because they were just waiting for it to happen. Right. So as time went on, he shows up earlier and earlier in the movies. And I think because of all the tension that's created around people waiting for our Homeric reference yes. every week, yes. that uh, we should do it in the first three or four minutes. Okay, check that box. We've made the Homeric reference. Would, would you just explain that Homeric reference and maybe even spell it? Uh, P-R-O-E-M. P-R-O-E-M, proem. The first dozen or so lines of an epic poem are a summary of everything that's going to happen in the poem. And that's essentially happening structurally here as the fortune teller tells us the entire plot of the rest of the opera. Oh, you want to pull out your libretto and help us out with that? Well, maybe it helps to set the stage a little bit. They're in a uh, Viennese hotel. Viennese, meaning they're in Vienna. They're in Vienna. Okay. And the family, the count and countess, are reduced to poverty. Oh, the old impoverished aristocrat trope. And so what do they have to do? Under that trope. Marry off a daughter. Marry off a daughter. Always. <laughs> Gotta find... Wait, wait. If you're an impoverished aristocrat, you have to find a wealthy person who doesn't have a title. Right. So this would be this would be a marriage plot. A marriage plot. Maybe we should drop back to operatic conventions for a moment because... Okay. Uh, Strauss and his uh, librettist... How do you say that word? Librettist. Librettist. Is Did that, you know at some word? point when I said the word libretto to someone who wasn't familiar with it, he said to me, libretto, that's not a real word. That sounds like something that would be delicious, warmed up with butter and jam on it. <laughs> libretto. It does sound like an Italian dessert, doesn't it? Or a French pastry. But no, it is a... <laughs> and then that person's and wife what's the person scolded called? him and said, it's the script for an opera. So what's the thing called, the person called who writes that? librettist librettist yes so 
uh, Strauss and his librettist are playing a trick on us as the audience of this opera in this uh, opening sequence. Not the first time they've done that, by the way. Do you want to explain the trick? No, I'm going to let you do that. So as the Countess and the fortune teller go about the business of reading the cards, there is another character on stage, clearly a woman, but wearing men's clothing. Oh, wait. And we've all seen Der Rosenkavalier. And we've also seen, I mean, uh, we've seen aficionados of opera for everyone will have heard us talk through Rosenkavalier and also Ariadne of Naxos. And Keely and I have talked at length about these trouser rolls. So it's not unusual to see a woman in man's clothing. Playing a young man. Playing a young man. And we're accustomed to that. So you think it's a trouser roll, but it's not, is it? It's not a trouser roll. She actually is a woman in the world of the opera, but she's dressed as a man because the family is so impoverished, they only have the wealth to introduce one daughter into society. Because it costs a lot more to have a daughter as an aristocrat than it does to have a son. Absolutely. Yes. So they're messing with us. So they're messing with you in a, in a hilarious kind of way. <laughs> so they, so in this very early scene, uh, the, the place is set, the time is set. It's oh. 1860, so it's, the, so, right. it's, so it's basically civil war. All right. Well, that would be if we were set in the United States. It's pre-Civil War. Uh, there are soldiers. <laughs> pause, the soldiers pause, pause, will pause, be... Pause. Okay, the historian in me can't let that one go. Should, just... we, should we play the next sequence and then come back to this? All right, we can All right. play the next sequence and come back to this. <laughs> <laughs> Ich bring dir weder solch einen Brief, heute oder morgen. Heute noch, 
Welcome back to Opera for Everyone on 89.1 KHOL. You're listening to Arabella by Richard Strauss. And before we tell you what you just heard, we get to come back to that historical point. This is the year 1860. So the soldiers we see are dividing up between north and south. The empire based in Vienna had to choose, just as France, England, and other nations had to choose, <laughs> Which side of the Civil War they would support. All right, stop. Just stop it now. And so the emissaries have arrived with their Husser. Okay, just stop. The Civil War was in the United States. It was not in Europe. These... But the Europeans took sides. They could care less. This was the Austrian... Because Benjamin Franklin had been dispatched to try to... Benjamin Franklin was long dead at this point. Get the French to support the northern states. Because he was from Philadelphia. 60. 1860. This is the Austrian Empire, whose capital is in Vienna. It's the empire that was stabilized and made great by Clemens von Metternich, that great reactionary, the great rebuilder of European power following the fall of Napoleon, who tried to bring revolutionary ideas Along with dictatorship and all, but never mind all that. But there's not no civil war, no civil there's war. No, <clears throat> there's no relevance whatsoever in this opera to the American Civil War. There's none. no reference to the American Absolutely Civil War. None. No one cares. There's one guy in uniform, and there's nobody really cares about the war. It's really just about what's going on in this hotel and a ballroom in Vienna. And there's there is a lot of waltz music that we get to hear in the background because, after all, Vienna is the waltz capital. Uh, the capital of, of the, the world. worlds and the capital of the soccer tort. Oh, soccer torts. Can we have a soccer tort at intermission? If we... Oh, yes, please. All right. I'm looking yes, forward to please. that. All right. Tell us about these characters we're hearing about, hearing singing, I should say. So we started with the Countess hearing the fortune 
the introduction of character known as either Zdenka or Zdenko, depending on whether or not the person addressing her knows that she's really a girl in disguise or really believes that she's a boy. So who knows that she's actually female? Her sister, father, mother. Immediate family. Immediate family, but no one else. Okay. Closely guarded secret. All right. We could see from the audience that she's female, but it's the opera convention. If you're wearing a certain piece of clothing, we all fall for it. Exactly. Okay. It's as if on the Shakespearean stage there had been a woman in one of the women's parts. It would have been hilarious. Fair enough. So Zdenka is in love with Matteo. Matteo? Tell us about him. And Matteo is in love with Arabella. Okay. And who's... Tell us the relationship of these so people Mateo other than the love. is the soldier. Matteo is the soldier. He's he is so deeply in love. He sends flowers daily to Arabella. And his affections are encouraged by letters that he receives from Arabella, which are actually being written by Zdenka. Classic love triangle. Classic love triangle. And so Arabella arrives, and Zdenka tries to convince her to take the suit seriously of Matteo. Now, wait, wait, wait. You said Zdenka's actually in love with Matteo, but she's encouraging Arabella to take Matteo's affection seriously because because he is so deeply in love with Arabella that if he does not win her as his prize he will kill himself oh my goodness really perhaps it's time to talk a little about Arabella how would you describe her well first of all what I do know is that have we made clear that Arabella and Zdenka are sisters so that's important she's the one sister absolutely clear so far (laughs) (laughs) That's that's our job here on Opera for Everyone, telling the story. So so those two are the sisters. So Arabella is the sister that the parents have decided financially they can bring out into society. So she's the sister on whom the family is pinning And she's not any sister. She's the most beautiful woman in Vienna, which is the imperial capital. So kind of the most beautiful woman around. Exactly. Right. And she has suitors. And, and the suitors is. are all counts. They're all counts, so they all have... Elmer, Dominic, and Lamoral. And not only does Matteo send presents to her daily, each of them also send daily presents. So the counts are going to vastly outrank, and probably, I'm guessing, they're not impoverished nobles. I'm guessing they're nobles of means. A, uh, marriage, to, a marriage to one of the counts would be a fine marriage indeed, under the terms of their society. Right. The counts are deeply in love with her. So she's the one that the parents are pinning their hopes on. She's the one who's going to save this impoverished noble family from their poverty. Yes, because we are under a certain amount of time pressure here. The father, who is a gambler, is being sought in action by his creditors in court. So he could be destroyed. And it's also a special day. How so? It's the day before Lent. Oh, everybody gets crazy the day before Lent. So there's a lot of there's a lot of excitement and tension building. Should we explain why everyone gets crazy the day before Lent? Because once Lent starts, it's you're in a no fun zone. <laughs> That's when you give stuff up and you're getting ready. So for... it's Shrove Tuesday. It's the day before Lent. It's the day of it's Mardi Gras. It's the day of, of right. outrageous parties. Right. And so is there going to be a party here? There's going to be a party here. There's going to be a party and. 
really the only way out is for her to pick among the counts and agree to marry one by the end of the night. It's almost a Cinderella kind of clock we're working under here. Oh, wow. And Count Elimer is definitely ahead of the pack because they have thrown lots to see who will get to take her in their carriage, and he has won. So he has the best shot at persuasion here. Well, in my perusing of the libretto, I did read that he was tall and handsome. So he's got that going for him. He is absolutely tall and handsome, which I think returns to the question of Arabella. She needs to save her family. Three counts are desperately in love with her, as well as a gallant soldier. Why do we have a problem here? Because she can't choose? How would you describe her? She's very beautiful, but what is... Vain? But she's prideful. Prideful. And she's a true romantic. And she didn't fall in love with any of them at first sight. Oh, so she's not in love, so no go? Well, she is in love. We learn that she has seen a stranger in the street. Of course. And not only is the stranger tall, he's wearing a fur coat, which catches her attention. Oh, lovely. But she doesn't know his name. Hmm. An intriguing stranger. Intriguing stranger. I have a feeling we're going to see more of this stranger. Let's listen now to two beautiful duets as the sisters sing together and Arabella says that she has not yet found the right man but she will know him when he comes along.
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, and this is Richard Strauss's Arabella. Those were the two sisters singing about the fact that they'll know when they find the right man and that they're in love. Are we on KHOL? We are indeed, here, right here in Jackson, Wyoming. And what's the, what's the number? 89.1. KHOL. KHOL. I'm Pat Wright, your host, and with me here in the studio is... Greg. Greg. Thanks for joining us, Greg, and thanks for uh, having learned so much about this opera. It's a good one. It is a good one. So what happens now? Oh, come on. That's not how this works. (laughs) You're in the hot seat today. Did you finish your discussion of the historical context of this opera? Well, this is not a history-heavy opera, although I did have to correct you when you said we were set in the American Civil War. <laughs> well, you know, I would give you a little historic background just on Richard Strauss and the... Um, Please do. Well, I mean, not extreme amounts of it, but uh, he and Hugo von Hofmannsthal were longtime collaborators. They, I think Der Rosenkavalier is probably the most famous of their collaborations, but... They had six that they did together, and Electra was the earliest of those. Big, it was a big hit, and that that gets performed semi uh, semi often. And Ariadne of Naxos is uh, also part of the repertoire. One that we have also, Keely and I did that here on Opera for Everyone. Uh, and then two we have not talked about at all: The Woman Without a Shadow. Which really, you know, uh, Hugo von Hofmannsthal could get very deep, and he was he was quite a playwright as well, and he could get kind of dense with his with his writing, and that one gets a little more difficult. And then the Egyptian Helen, which was also um, very interesting, and he works with Greek mythology with that, just as he did with Ariadne of Naxos, although that was a bit of a mashup, kind of a confusing and fun one as well. Won't even try to summarize that one briefly. But Arabella, he he makes an effort almost to try to make it a bit like an operetta. It's not really, but he tries a bit to try to lighten it up. And one of the things that's interesting about Arabella is he hammered it out in the first act with Hofmannsthal, as was his wont. They, they kind of didn't do well if they were in the same room together. So it's fun because their collaboration is very well documented because they tended to do it by letter. But Hofmannsthal son died in the process of writing this and then Hofmannsthal had a heart attack very shortly after his son's own death and he had completed the libretto but they hadn't done the back and forth revisions and out of profound admiration and respect Strauss kept the libretto the way it was so there has been some question and criticism as to whether or not maybe the libretto shouldn't have been revised a little bit and there are some different changes that some companies employ. And then the other thing that's kind of interesting, historically speaking, is not about the setting of the opera, but it's the, it's about the premiere of the opera and the timing of that. Although it was 1929 when Hofmannsthal passed away and this was done and, and uh, Strauss was still working on finishing up the music um, and pretty much almost did, he had to take a break to do some work on, believe it or not, a Mozart opera. He had to do some work on revising Idomeneo. This is during the period of time that Hitler was rising. And it was 
getting into the 30s by the time he had been contracted to do the premiere at the Dresden Opera House. And the people who were going to be the artistic director and the director of the opera, one of them was Jewish and one of them was a supporter and um, tried to help out the Jews and they had both been sent into exile or they had escaped. And he wanted to bring them back to help help out and that was a no-go. And he wanted to have the famous uh, singer, Lorilenia, play the title role. And she refused. She said, no, I won't, not with Hitler in charge and calling the shots artistically, I, I refuse. So it played in Dresden and it, it did okay. But when it had its premiere in Vienna and Lorilenia did play, it did much, much better. So there's a little bit of mix, mixing up of what, what's going on in 1933 with the premiere of this opera. Wow. A little bit of background there. Okay, let's get back to the uh, drawing room antics of this impoverished aristocratic family. So I hear sleigh bells, and I think that is Elmer coming to say that he has won the draw, and he gets to take her in his sleigh on a ride. He presses his suit, and she thinks first of the handsome stranger, and as he presses his suit further, she gazes out the window and sees what she thinks is a fleeting glimpse of the handsome stranger. In the fur coat. Oh, 
So the beautiful Arabella is off on the sleigh ride with the handsome Elmer. Adelaide and her husband, the Count, come into the room and they talk about the direness of their financial situation. She has sold her last brooch. He has spent his last 50. They have nothing. But he has a plan. Back in his days in the regiment, he had a friend who was fabulously wealthy and he has sent the friend a picture of Arabella, thinking that her stunning beauty will cause his friend to propose marriage. His friend, who's the same age that he is. The mom does point out that that could be an issue. All right, then. Well, you know, you got to try what, what you got to try. It was interesting you said before that they tried to write an operetta. I don't think that these two had an operetta in them. They <laughs> are, are capable of deep psychological truths, right. uh, which is not what operetta is about. No. And as jovial and as friendly and as avuncular as the father, you know, may appear, right. he is essentially selling his daughter to the highest bidder. And the wealth of the three counts who are courting her is not sufficient to the rapaciousness of his gambling addiction. Right. But he has not heard back from his friend, and it has been a long time since the letter was sent. And four, tonight's the night. With Fourteen the big weeks, ball. and tonight right. is the night. And she's going to say yes to Elmer, or worse yet, to the soldier. Oh no! Uh, which would be the ruin of the family. Right. But that's what the sister in the young men's clothing writing the letters is hoping for. A calling card is presented. A stranger comes in. Let's wait a bit. A stranger. A baritone. A baritone. A baritone. You were expecting a tenor. Indeed I was. But he's a baritone. Hmm. And he is... The plot thickens. Hunky. Hunky baritone. baritone comes in. You have my attention. And the audience, for the fifth or sixth time in this opera, mm-hmm. is purposefully confused in that this is the man who's responding to the letter, his old friend, and yet they don't recognize each other. How could this be? How could this be? It turns out that this is not his old friend. This is his old friend's nephew who has been the heir to the entire estate. How convenient. And is now so wealthy Mm -hmm. that he is second only to the emperor in power and prestige, social standing. How extremely convenient. And he's wearing a fur coat. Oh, we like it more and more and more. But he's a baritone. I mean, I like baritones, but. So a convention in marriage plot stories is the conditional love song. And because Strauss and his librettist, librettist? Librettist. librettist? Hoffman Stahl, if that's easier. Now you're just messing with me. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Because Strauss is a librettist, ours is geniuses. As geniuses, they're free to break your rules. Yes. And so the only time I can think of the conditional love song is not sung between the lovers. It's sung between the father and the new suitor. Because it's the father who is really falling in love with the money. (laughs) That's great. So I think we should listen to that song. Oh, let's do. Brief, er kam rachhaftlich, 
That was the conditional love song with the father and Mandrika singing about what would have happened if Mandrika's uncle had been alive and had seen the letter and had fallen desperate in love and had made the journey and had asked for this woman to be his lady and his wife. What then? That's what you mean by conditional? And the father, all of, yes, it's all, all, all subjunctive. subjunctive. Mm. And the father responds, then we would have found ourselves in an unexpected situation. Fair enough. It's probably worth also, while we're, we're praising uh, Strauss and his, his um, libretto writer. Um, <laughs> A librettist? Librettist. Hoffmannstahl. Hoffmannstahl. To um, point out that I offhand, other than maybe Rosen Cavalier, I mean, can't think of another opera in which the subtext is handled so beautifully. Mm. At almost all points in this opera, the characters are talking about something, but on a textual basis, they're talking about a, about a, a third thing. This conversation about what would have happened had the uncle lived, of course, yes. had nothing to do with the uncle and what he would have lived. Um, this is a gentleman asking another gentleman for his daughter. And uh, there's an extraordinary uh, beauty uh, in the clarity um, and the sweetness in which uh, so much of the subtext uh, occurs in this. And I think partly why the, the love story is as deeply moving as it is, is because uh, their communication with each other and with the audience is just on uh, such a profound level through the use of, of language and the, the, the beauty. It's nice to hear you talk about the love story being deeply moving because the introduction of it sounds very transactional and monetarily motivated. Yes. It's interesting how well this works on multiple levels. And I think part of what's going on in the love story and the way you care about these people is it's just less clear than it ever is what's really happening. Are we watching a comedy or are we watching a tragedy? In that first sequence, one of the things the fortune teller says is that swords will be drawn. Ooh. And based on the costumes and the set and the tone and the way the music plays and the words that are spoken, as we move through this opera uh, to the moment when swords will be drawn, it's been foreseen, you don't know if this is going to end in deaths or marriage. And the you know, opera is, is not known for the uh, reasonableness of the psychological motivation of the characters. Uh, we recently did Girl of the Golden West. Right. At no point in the opera does anyone do anything that makes any sense whatsoever on any kind of emotional or rational basis. In this opera, it's interesting how people's actions, their words, their thoughts, their motivations all just ring consistent with their characters. And, you know, he's been somewhat adventurous with the characters. The mom is superstitious to the point of ruin. The father's gambling addiction is to the point of ruin. For him, the situation with his daughter is purely transactional. Right. He's feeding a habit. He's an addict selling his daughter. Arabella is narcissistic to ruin. Zdenka is self-sacrificing to ruin. And Madrika has a very interesting song coming up. Ooh. In which he... Our baritone. Our baritone. In which he presents himself as the ideal man. He talks about how he has just... Yes. Won a wrestling match oh, with a bear. With a bear? Coming away with only a few broken ribs and a few minor scratches. Oh, just a flesh wound. 
So his, <laughs> his uh, strength and virility is, is being emphasized. Ah. But he also talks about the thousands of people who are his servants. The mountains he owns, the rivers he owns, the forests he owns. The mountains that he owns. Yes. Hmm. And what's interesting about this is, is there's only one real reason why he would do this, because this comes after the father has accepted his proposal. Yeah. The only reason he would be doing this is basically out of insecurity. Uh, he's right. insecure to, to prove himself. Well, he's in, I mean, again, I did scan the libretto. And he's, he's not from Vienna. He's not from the center of this empire where he's not from the capital. He's from Slovenia. He's from the, uh, the far outskirts of the empire. And so he feels himself coming to the capital city as beneath these people in right. some way. He's not of this uh, aristocratic, of, even though he's, he's well-placed, he's incredibly wealthy. He doesn't have, I mean, Vienna, for heaven's sakes, that's about as cultured as you're going to get in right. this world in the mid-19th century. It's, it's as, a, you know, the, the manners and the morals and the, the expectations of behavior, that's as cultivated as it comes. And he's not well, of that circle. These are the people who invented the soccer tour, Well, which could be the, the height, height of civilization. Of civilization. Yes. yes, and the waltz. Yes. Yeah. So yes. um, he mentions that he has sold Forrest to uh, give him unlimited cash for this trip so that nothing can stand in his way. I'm sorry, he's sold a forest? Yes. Uh, so he nice. gives he gives the father a few thousand units of local currency. The father, remember in the last scene, was despairing because he'd, he'd given away his last 50. He now has 2,000, so he's immediately planning to go gambling with that. Oh, not, uh, pay, not pay off, off the people off, who are about to drag him into court. Not to pay off mm -hmm. the debtors who are about to drag him into court. That's how you know you have a gambling problem. Him. Yes, mm -hmm. and um, the scene ends as the two of them conclude their, their conversation. And uh, I think we should listen to this extraordinary song by the baritone as he talks about his powers and his lands and his wealth and his love and how he has fallen in love with the photograph and why he has come. So in other words, this is Mandrika telling us I'm so cool. And from a story point of view, this is us saying, wow, if Arabella doesn't go for this, <laughs> the audience will just give up on her. All right. So he's bragging, but he's also, he's also, he's brought us all along. He's also, he's the man she fell in love with at first sight. Right. He is her romantic dream and he happens uh, to be uh perfect in every other possible way and he's the man that she was singing about wistfully in the dream song essentially with her sister earlier exactly all right let's listen to that one <laughs> Oh, 
schönes Urteil. Nein, ich darf sie sehen. Bedenken, dieser Brief kommt an und in der gleichen Stunde nimmt mich die alte Bärin in die Arme. Listening to Opera for Everyone on 89.1 KHOL. Today's opera is Arabella by Richard Strauss and librettist Hugo von Hoffmannsthal. I'm Pat Wright and I'm joined today in the studio by Greg. Hi. Hi, Greg. So the father departs, Madrika departs, Sedeka and Matteo, the soldier, come into the room. He presses her for another letter. She promises one before the night is out. Remind us about these letters again. These are the letters that she is writing of her incredible love for him, but in her sister's handwriting and signing her sister's name because she knows he will become so depressed and despondent 
if he realizes that the sister is going to choose one of the counts and not him. Right, and you're using the female pronoun, but of course Matteo thinks that she is a he, as does the rest of the world. Right, the perfect, good example of irony that what we typically most want is right in front of us and we can't see it. Yes, yes indeed. So then Arabella comes in to close out the act and she has just had this sleigh ride with Elmer. She knows that Matteo is deeply in love with her. She knows that the other two counts are deeply in love with her. She thinks about a possible future with Elmer because she has to decide within a few hours and she hasn't yet met the mysterious man in the fur coat. But she sings this beautiful song as she thinks about what it would mean if she could meet him.
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for a mainstream audience. We air Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud, where you can find a rich trove of past episodes. I'm your host today, Pat Wright, joined by special guest co-host Greg. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to Opera for Everyone here on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined here in the studio today by... Greg. By Greg. Thanks for joining us today, Greg, and thanks for having gone to the trouble of seeing this opera and learning so much about it. We appreciate all that you're bringing to the table today. You're welcome. Thank you. We are at the beginning of Act Two in Richard Strauss's opera, Arabella. And what's happening? Should we do the opera helmet quiz? <gasps> ah, now it was my turn to forget all about it. And you get to do the quiz. No, or do I have to do the quiz? I think because I remembered you have to do the quiz. Oh, no. I never do the quiz. <laughs> That's always Keeley's job. <gasps> all right. All right. All right. So here's the quiz question. At least I'm already wearing the opera helmet. What has happened so far in this opera? That is the quiz for the opera helmet. It is 1860 in Vienna. We are, for the first act, we are in a hotel in Vienna. The main family is an impoverished aristocratic family who desperately needs to solve the problem of their poverty. Part of the way they've dealt with their poverty so far is, though they have two daughters, they've dressed up one of their daughters and raised her her whole life as a boy because it's so expensive to have a girl, bringing her out in society and all. And now in their poverty, they have pinned all their hopes on the daughter, the one they've told the world is a girl. They've pinned all their hopes on her marrying uh, a wealthy man who can bring money into the family. Things are so dire that tonight, this night of Shrove Tuesday, or what we might know better as Mardi Gras, the night before Ash Wednesday, this is the night she has to choose between her suitors. I mean, it helps that she's the most beautiful woman, eligible woman in Vienna. She has titled and wealthy men who are after her. And there's also a stranger who's been spotted by her. And it has transpired that this is in fact the nephew of an old military buddy of her father. And he has fallen madly in love with her photograph. And he has sung a love song to her father. And he wants to marry her father is tickled to death to have this man who owns mountains and forests and oh by the way he's wrestled a bear with his bare hands and one and one well we didn't hear what happened to the bear but there he is standing all in one piece so that's and i love good. that he 
dominated the bear by giving him a bear hug. That's meeting your opponent on their own terms. Indeed. Indeed. (laughs) And he is wearing a fur coat, so let's not ask too many questions. (laughs) (laughs) Mandrika, that's his name. But he's not from the capital. He has a little bit of a concern about his social graces with the aristocracy and with the very cultured people of the capital. But there he is, because he's fallen in love with the picture of this beautiful young woman, and he's so pleased that this father of this young woman has succumbed to his wooing in this love song and has agreed to let him marry the daughter. So they haven't yet met, but he has decided to marry her and has received her father's permission, and she has seen him in the street and said that should she meet him, she would wed him. So before they've met, so I feel like already decided, probably it, the opera's just about wrapped up, huh? It's really close to being wrapped yeah, up. Yeah, good. There's very little that could go wrong at this point. Right, it's all going swimmingly. Except that he's insecure and she's a narcissist. Those things don't pair well. No, and the father's a gambler. I'm a little concerned about that as well. And what about this whole thing with the sister being dressed up like a boy? There's going to be a problem in that. Well, as the well. fortune teller did say that swords would be drawn oh, and, and yeah. pistols. And you told us about the proem. Yeah. So we should say that what's happening next is just impossibly sweet. This is when they do meet. It is the truest, deepest love, and we get to see them courting. She's been described throughout the entire opera by all the other characters as a coquette, but we haven't actually seen her flirt with anyone, including any of the suitors. No, we did hear her sing sweetly with her sister. But that's not flirting with one of the suitors. No. But now... The first thing she says to Mandrika is, you don't look like someone who takes an interest in all this, meaning the party they're at, the last night of carnival. What brings you here? To me, that sounds like a flirt line. Yeah. You don't look like someone who takes an interest in all this. What brings you here? All this frivolity of this silly party, yeah. And her father has, of course, told her that he has come all this distance across the, the country to marry her. Right. And he says, to Vienna? And she says, here to this ball. And he says, you asked me what brings me here? Meanwhile, of course, one of the other counts asks her for a waltz, and she dismisses him, but she dismisses him politely, saying later. That's actually a hook that's important to the plot later. Okay. And he again presses her. Has your father didn't say anything? Now Elmer comes, and he asks for a dance, and again, she tells him later. Elmer um, with the sleigh bells. Right. And he says, you know nothing of me? She shakes her head. But it's clear, if this is properly directed and properly acted, that it, that. This is just flirting. He knows exactly why he's there. She knows exactly why he's there. The father told told her everything. She's going to make him work for it. And she, you know, she wants to know what the father would have told her. Mm-hmm. And he says that he's half a peasant. You know, his father was this wealthy, wealthy man, but his mother was, was a peasant. Oh, and I'm just a simple country boy. He tells her how beautiful she is. Oh, a girl she, never minds hearing that. And she wonders how he got the picture of her down in Slovenia and he says that's not really important but then he he decides to he decides to basically your father was trying to sell you off yeah <laughs> so he decides to just go for it he says yeah. you are so beautiful there's a power in your features that imprints the soul like soft wax for a simple man surrounded by fields and forest such a power is very great and he becomes a dreamer a possessed man and he makes a decision with his soul a complete decision and once he decides then he must act Countess, I have forgotten what the world is like elsewhere. Here I am not among my forests and fields. You must forgive my clumsy words, by which I'm keeping you from dancing. Aww. 
And Lamoral comes up now and asks for Waltz. And, and Lamoral's one of the other suitors. She tells him and other of the counts, uh, you know, later again. Buzz off. <laughs> and now she admits, she says, you wish to marry me, my father says. And then she interestingly says, but do you have any notion of who we are? We aren't very much by the standards of the world. We live from day to day, leading a rather dubious existence. Oh, she fesses up. And she's, he says that she carries her pedigree on her face, and it is enough for her to rule. And he says, this is the man who in his last speech said that he was clumsy of word, says, you will tend peacocks on a field of silk, and it will not happen that anyone thinks himself higher than you, unless it is the king and emperor and his empress, but no one else. Wow. Peacocks she, on a field of silk. And she tells him, basically, she's not that interested in money. And for her, the right man will appear suddenly and look at her and she at him. And there will be no evasions and no questions. And everything will be bright and open like a shining river that the sun sparkles on. And he says there's a shining river, the Danube, that runs by his house. Oh, I just kind of want to break into a waltz myself right now. <laughs> and she's the most beautiful of women. And this very night, before going to sleep, if she were a girl from one of his villages, she would have to go to the well behind her father's house and draw a glass of clear water and give it to him at the threshold, showing that he is her betrothed before God and the world. A glass of water from the well would be her way, as a village girl, of saying she accepts his proposal. Huh. And he says that he wishes her to be his wife and mistress. And she says, and you will be my ruler, and I will be subject to you. Very romantic. I think we should listen to that song. Oh, please. Tanzen noch und auf sie nehmen 
aber brauche nicht ein einziges Wort an mich zu richten. Darf ich? Sie dürfen. Ja, Sie dürfen alles, was Sie wollen. Der Ball begehrt nach seiner Königin. Die Milli ist der Herold der Fiaker. Wir haben unsere Hundjung hier in den Mond gelegt. So when we left the young lovers, he had proposed, she had accepted. The proposal in the most poetic of terms, the acceptance in the most poetic of terms. She said, your house will be my house. I will be buried with you in your grave. Thus I give myself up to you for time and eternity. Wow, that is, that is beautiful. So what unfinished business is there left? Well, there are those little guys she kept shooing away. She promised those three guys a dance. And so she says to this guy... Those didn't feel like very firm promises. So she just says to this guy, I, I need another hour of my, my being a girl. And I promise these other guys dances and maybe kisses. And, you know, no, we no, have no, to... No, 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 Not necessary, roll, sweetheart. Roll that off. Um, Girlfriend, you don't and, need to um, do it. <laughs> he is <laughs> so impossibly gracious. He says, uh, sure... And he orders 60 bottles of champagne and two coaches of flowers. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Okay, he is, he is an unusually nice baritone. <laughs> um, and then we have a, a little bit of a diversion with uh, Millie, whose role in this opera is uh, completely unclear to me, uh, <laughs> singing a song. She's the, the belle of the ball. She and was part... Okay, I, I actually have a little insight into this. Yes, go ahead. I'd love to hear this. She's part of what's left when Hoffmannstahl, he actually put together two plays that he was writing uh, when uh, Strauss came to him and said he had an idea of what he wanted to do for the next opera, and he kind of put together two ideas of plays that he was writing, and the this ball this coachman's ball as it was called this because this is a this was an actual event that took place in vienna on shrove tuesday the night before lent began and it was uh, it was infamous the idea that counts and coachmen would get together and basically everyone got blotto so much that you couldn't tell who was a count and who was a coachman and there would be this this fiacre, this fiacre mili, this woman who was kind of the, I don't know, like the Rose Bowl queen is the best I can come up with, who would just be like leading all of the frivolity. And that's who this is. She Wow, I didn't actually think I was going to have an explanation for that. Well, there you go. See, I, you, you've got the heart of the matter here and all the deep romanticism. I have just the little flourishes. Speaking of which, she I do know that she is a, a coloratura soprano. Basically, it's the Italian word for flourishes, I think. Yeah. yeah, lots of flourishes in her singing.
So we now have this extended and somewhat awkward sequence where Arabella says goodbye to each of the suitors and uh, basically tells them they lost. Yeah, I'm just, I'm so totally tense over this. <laughs> Which, again, makes perfect sense if you accept that she's a narcissist and makes no sense whatsoever otherwise. If you really want to believe in this deep love that we just heard you explain. Right. Now, Zendeka, who's not supposed to have come to this thing, shows up to oh. give Mateo a key and a promise. She says, I was to bring you a letter, but instead here's a key. And he a says, key. what's the key to? And he says, she says, the room next to Arabella's room. Oh, no. And you go there now and you wait for her and she will come to you and you will have a night of passion. Well, wow. That doesn't sound very good for her sister's reputation. The line is, she wants to do everything to make you happy this very night. Oh, bad plan. Now the problem... <laughs> <laughs> I, I could... I could name a few problems. Is that Mandrika has heard this. Very big problem. Yeah, you don't really want your fiancé to hear that you're giving your bedroom key out to some random soldier. And he would like to believe that it's some misunderstanding. There's another Arabella at the dance. Oh, yeah. But he looks over his shoulder, and she's smooching one of the counts as they twirl the floor. Oh, one, of, so, the, one of the guys she needs to say goodbye to. Yeah, and so he's thinking... <laughs> Wow, maybe I should have done some more diligence before popping the question here. Before I fell in love with Papa and sang the song, right? Exactly. So, yes. Should we listen? Yeah, yes, let's listen. Welcome back to Opera for Everyone here on 89.1 KHOL. Today's opera is Arabella by Richard Strauss. I'm Pat Wright, and I'm joined today by Greg. Greg. 
Welcome, Greg. Good to be here. Yeah. So uh, tell us about... Do you know what the Syrahs that you're serving? It's very good. I'm sorry? The Syrah? It's very good. Thank you. It goes well with these... What are these? Soccer tort. Is that soccer tort? Vienna. It doesn't have gold leaf on the top. It's really not good to eat gold. (laughs) Not good. It's sugar. Now, sugar's okay. I don't know how you get so many layers. Pastry. Yeah. Where were we? Oh. Vienna. Uh, Mandrika is losing his mind over the betrayal. That I was, know. Poor man. Shall we, shall we just actually wallow in his sorrow for a moment and, and listen as he goes? As long through? as it's baritone singing, I can wallow with him. Let's, uh, let's, let's listen to him as he actually starts to lose his mind. In der schönen Welt weiß ich nur Schwächen An kein Mädchen weiß ich Schwächen Tochter Ach, wir hoffen uns, weiß ich auf Mädchen Fing es an zu schreien, weiß ich verrückt Seht ihr nicht, wie weiß ich denkt ihr Losing his mind over the betrayal of his recently betrothed, her father and mother, and Mandrika, head back to the hotel. And this now, is very sad. It's very sad. Yeah. It is the, the earlier question we had about when swords are drawn, will this be a comedy or a tragedy? Right. It's pretty clear in the minds of the audience at this point that it's going to be a tragedy. It doesn't feel very funny He's, right now. He's going to show up at the hotel and uh, find Mateo, and um, someone is going to die. Right, because Mateo's got that key. Mateo's got the key. Now we're in for an extended, beautiful, musical passage with no singers. And it's a bit of a plot spoiler, but I think that's kind of the whole point of opera for everyone, right? To spoil the plots. We don't spoil them. We enhance enjoyment and understanding of opera. Well, it probably enhance your enjoyment and understanding of this long musical interlude because people may be thinking the intermission was between Act 1 and 2, and so they're going to have the audience in their seats, and they're going to do a set change now, and that is going to be papered over by this beautiful music. But it's Strauss, so it's always a little more sophisticated than one might think. Yeah. And uh, what we're listening to now is 
the lovemaking scene. Those two people in the hotel room. With the key. With the key. And this is the music that they are making. Aha. Let's listen.
Well, thanks for thanks for letting us know all that. I'm I'm blushing and I'm I need a glass of water and a fan, I think. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> Your opera helmet almost fell off. I'll um I'll put myself together in a moment. <laughs> so this is followed by curtain opening and Arabella coming into the lobby of the Grand Hotel. Yes. Using a small G there. And she is reminiscing, if you can reminisce about something that hasn't happened yet, about what it's going to be like to live in the deep, quiet forest with Mandrika. Don't we call that fantasizing? Yes. Yes. And then who should bound down the stairs, buttoning up his coat? Oh, well, that would have to be Mateo, wouldn't it? That would have to be the um, Mateo who... Um, with a big, stupid grin on his with face? a big, stupid grin on his yeah. face. And he sees her, and there's a little bit of a Jane Austen scenario that plays out over the next 50 minutes of the Are opera. Are we going to make this a regular reference, like the Homeric reference, a Jane Austen reference? <laughs> well... Where um, they're talking at cross-purposes? There are certain differences in what the men think they're saying and what the women think the men are saying and what the men think the women are saying and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, she starts off by saying, oh, hi, you're here. It's late. Hi. And he's very confused because... Um, because he thinks he just left her up in the bedroom. Well, he thinks he thinks he she left him in the bedroom and she went then to change and now maybe she's going out again. And he can't understand why she's going out again. But mostly he can't understand why she's being formal and distant and cold with him. Yeah. She is essentially, you know, saying goodbye to him as she said goodbye to the others. Mm. And he can't believe that she could be so cold. It does not occur to him that perhaps And he explains that he doesn't really understand. He thought they had made a deal upstairs that if she gave herself to him that that would only be for this night and that starting tomorrow he would relinquish all claims to her right. and move on with his life having had this moment. But he thought he had a couple more hours on the clock. Um, <laughs> she's just treating him like one of the one of the many suitors. At this point, yeah, her parents and Mandrika come in and oh, find great. them together. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> now it is beginning to feel a little comedic. And Mandrika realizes that this is the man who accepted the key. Okay. Comedy just flew out the room. Yeah, because it's it's bad enough when you have a love triangle. Mm-hmm. But if you think about this, this is a love heptagon. I hadn't thought that hard about it. Yes. <laughs> well, in this love heptagon, why don't we play the song where some of these uh, extra parties arrive in the hotel lobby, shall we? Yes.
Ci. Ecco, Ergos wurde an ihn erkannt. Du packst, wir fahren mit dem Essen zu Klaus. Ich 
Herren ausreden lassen. Ein kleines Wort war ihm noch auf der Zunge. Nein, keines, außer... It may help to summarize what's going on, as this has degenerated into farce. And again, Strauss playing with this at one point, one of the characters points out that this has degenerated into farce. He actually uses the word farce. Yes. Wonderful. So the father believes that Mandrika is for no reason whatsoever besmirching his daughter's honor. Mm. The mother has no idea what's going on, but she knows it's bad. Right. Arabella just accepted a proposal from a man who is now angry at her and has ordered his servants to pack his bags and is leaving unaccountably. Stomping out in a huff. Stomping out in a huff. Right. Matteo has just had five minutes and 61 seconds of bliss, <laughs> that musical <laughs> interlude we listened to. Yes. And um, he doesn't understand why this woman is disdaining him. Um, but if it comes to it, he will absolutely, um, you know, fight uh, with Mandrika, uh, with swords or pistols, whatever they bring in. He's a soldier after all. He's a soldier. And the father, of course, has, has you know, demanded pistols. But, of course, he had to sell his pistols because of his impoverishment. But they can get another set of pistols. But let's not forget, Mandrika did fight a bear with his bare hands. Yes. No, we we do believe here that Mandrika would take out both the father and Matteo. Uh, simultaneously. Simultaneously. Yeah. Um, without a lot of trouble. And we could add Elmer, Dominic, and Lamoral to that if we, <laughs> if we wished. Um, They're like a little trio of... Yes, even if yeah. they had Millie on their side, it would, it would all be over pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So... Um, this absurd sequence of uh, reclamations and counter-reclamations plays out. Um, and Arabella's prideful nature uh, prevents her from diffusing this as she might. Oh, right. Like, how dare you accuse me is about as far as, far as it will go with her. Exactly. Of so course. she essentially refuses to, to explain the situation, although it would be hard to explain the situation from her perspective. Oh, yes. So Mandrika explains that he saw the key um, being given to Matteo. And at this point... Yes. What happens? Well, we Someone need... Else, who's sister, missing? The sister brother needs the to show up. The sister brother comes tearing down the stairs... As? Dressed how? As a girl in a nightgown. As a girl in a nightgown. Of a course. Beautiful girl in a nightgown. And everyone's and jaw drops. Everyone's jaw drops. Of course. Because she's a girl. Because she's a girl. And because. And no one like recognizes her, of course, because she's a girl, right? Except her family. Right. And because she also appears to be driven to madness. Because right. she has just said goodbye forever to the only man that she will ever love. Oh. Not to mention that in this society, in this culture, in this day, she's now formally unmarriageable and has lost skies of being a boy. Right. So I Things think we are should, not going well for the family. I think we should listen to her song as she tears down the stairs.
Welcome back to Opera for Everyone. This is Richard Strauss's Arabella, and we have just listened to Zdenka, Zdenko, becoming Zdenka, coming down in her nightgown, 
which is that right there is scandalous, but they didn't even know she was a girl. And she's confessing her shame. Now, Mandrika, who is a pretty smart guy, is staring at her thinking, I've seen that face before. Right. So, oh my goodness. So he's like breaking the opera convention that if you change like one little piece of clothing, you're unrecognizable. He's like, wait a minute. Exactly. So he realizes who she is and he realizes everything that has happened. Okay. I'm liking this man more and more. But will Arabella forgive him? Because he did kind of expect the worst. But he owns mountains. He does own mountains. And he fought a bear. (laughs) With his bare hands. Yeah. Yes. So he tries to start raveling it back together. Arabella, I know I'm not worthy of a single glance from you my whole life long, like a fool. And now I have only regret and shame until the last day of my life. But she has other things in her mind. Uh. She is pointing out that the next thing that really needs to happen is that Mateo and Zdenka should be wed. Oh, what a nice sister she is. And they agree. Oh, one happy ending. But it looks like one sad ending because she, and by she I mean Arabella, orders a glass of water, takes it, and heads up the stairs to go to bed, leaving forever Mandrika's life as his valet begins to pack for his trip back to the provinces the next day. Oh, so she takes care of her sister and then retires. Yes. Yes. She says, it's very good, Mandrika, that you didn't leave yet. I wanted to drink this glass all alone to the forgetting of the bad that has happened. Go quietly to bed thinking no more of you and me until the light of day came over us again. But then I saw you standing here in the darkness. A great power from above touched me in my heart so I might not refresh myself with water. Now what refreshes me is the feeling of happiness. And I raise this untouched drink to my friend. Wait a minute. We have, uh, there's been a mention of a glass of water earlier in this discussion of the opera. On this evening where my girlhood comes to an end. So... A couple of things are happening here. Search our memory banks. The one thing that's happening is she's pointing out that if she offers a glass of water, yes, she's offering herself. Yes. Just like those country girls. And she also points out that it's an untouched drink. Oh, we know what that means. Yes, yes. And... He says, as surely as no one after me will drink from this glass, <laughs> you are mine and I'm yours for eternity. And Aww. he smashes the glass into the wall. Ooh. And she says, <laughs> and so we are betrothed and united in joy and sorrow and hurt and forgiveness. And he says, for always my angel and for all that may come. And she asks, and you will believe? And he answers, you will stay as you are. And she responds, I cannot change. Take me as I am. Oh, coquette that she is. And then depending on whether you're watching this in San Francisco or New York, they either go up the stairs together or he bows 
and leaves the hotel. <laughs> I take it you've seen it both places. <laughs> so I am told. I can almost guess which is which. <laughs> can you guess uh, in which of the two performances Millie does a partial striptease? I can. Yes. <laughs> I can. Yeah, absolutely. And so wow. I think we should listen to this extraordinarily, you know, beautiful uh, set of songs uh, where the water is uh, is brought down the stairs and accepted. It's so beautiful because you have this uh, marriage, dare I use the phrase, the marriage of the Viennese society with the country traditions. And instead of it being uneasy as he was in the beginning, it becomes this beautiful beautiful situation where they're coming together and it's all working out they're melding they're melding their worlds and it's certainly an opera convention that when there's a curse or there's a prophecy or a fortune is told that that must happen later in the story Uh, but it's also an opera convention that when you say that something could happen that it does and he did say that if they were in the village that she would bring the water and he would accept it and they would be wed. Um, and this closes that circle perfectly and beautifully. So the father yeah, has... Vienna Hotel Lobby. It's close so enough. The father has unlimited cash for gambling. Oh. The mother um, has her world in balance, her problems resolved. Both of her daughters happily married off. Oh, and really, her the one daughter didn't stand a chance. So that's kind of amazing. Matteo... Um, who we may or may not have been rooting for, but never really stood a chance. Uh, right. Did extraordinarily well. Against um, all odds. Uh, you know, he got a soprano. and uh, Yeah, the tenor and the soprano ended up together, but not the lead couple. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, we don't really shed tears for Elmer, Dominic, and Lamoral because something tells me oh, yeah. they'll find girls too. Oh, not at all. We're, we're, we're They're going to be just fine. All right, shall we go out on some beautiful, beautiful Strauss music? Yes, please.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host, Pat Wright, joined today by special guest host, Greg. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud and tune in again next week, 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time, 89.1 KHOL, Jackson, Wyoming. Opera can be challenging, but everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable. Because we believe opera is for everyone. <laughs>